Chaim Shmulek. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to the Trafe Podcast. Hello, hello. How are you doing? I mean, physically, I'm feeling pretty good this morning. I'm, I'm just coming from a demonstration about a situation that's pretty intense. So we, we can get into that later in the show. Um, how about yeah. you? David, I am feeling so fantastic. I want to get on the top of a building and talk about how fantastic I feel. Oh, wow. Well, you have a platform here right now. Uh, why are you feeling so great today? Well, so the short answer is that I played hockey last night fairly late into the evening. Mm-hmm. Most days I feel really sick after I play hockey, but I've made some changes to the old diet. I'm sleeping better, less caffeine, and I really want to like make an infomercial. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like an infomercial. <laughs> I basically just want to, to tell people about the positive impacts of uh, eating relatively well. If anybody wants Sam's uh, health manifesto, just write in. So moving right along. <laughs> uh, we we uh, just recently got back from a big trip we did out to Coast Salish Territory in the Pacific Northwest. Correct. Um, we were doing a series of workshops about anti-Semitism, sort of, sort of intervening in a conversation that we see going on a lot in Jewish leftist spaces. And most of them went really well. Yeah, it was it was a great experience. Keeping people on their toes, not sure which one went well, which one didn't go well. No, I'm kidding. They all they all went well. Yeah, thank you so much to everybody who organized workshops, came to workshops, housed us, fed us, just made us feel really welcome uh, for this great experience that we had. It was it was terrific. Now I think that you have something to share with the people, David, about what you've been working on in the last couple months. Oh yeah, so we got back from this trip, and uh, we both sort of uh, had to hit the ground running with like you were. I know you were finishing off your semester at law school, and I was trying to finish off uh, a radio documentary I was working on for the CBC. It's finally finished. It's going to be broadcasting April third, which might actually be a day or two before this comes out, but it's available online. Now you've talked about this radio documentary, David. But have you explained what the subject matter of this documentary is? Um, it's a documentary about the border between New York State and Quebec. A group of people who live in this small village on the Quebec side formed an organization to help refugees who are crossing irregularly. I know how hard you've worked on this, and I'm jazzed to hear it. So congrats on your first radio doc. Thank you. And uh, you're just living the, the podcasting dream these days. <laughs> yeah, just uh, working all the time on edits. Um, so there's going to be another significant date that is going to be missed when you listen to this episode next week. It is Passover this weekend. Oh, indeed, indeed. Do you have any big plans for this Friday and Saturday? Pesach is probably my favorite Jewish holiday. And, and, and every year I try to do a, a third Seder, usually in about April with my mom and my sisters. Wait, but so how is the third Seder different from all other Seders? I mean, there's, there's a rich tradition of third Seders. I think the anarchists used to have it around May 1st as an organizing tool. So it's sort of a vague allusion to that. Okay. But in, in very practical terms, uh, both days are usually spoken for for my mom and my sisters. So this is a way of doing something together that, you know, no one has to stress about it. We do it whenever it's convenient. But what are you up to? Nothing out of the ordinary, just some good old-fashioned satyrs with the family. So Sam, passing over this conversation. Booyah. Uh, I think we should get uh, right into it. I agree wholeheartedly. Do you have any idea what number episode this is? Because... It's monumental. No, what's the number? It is our double high episode. Oh, 36. Yes. Oh, interesting. So that's good luck. Incredible luck. It is the number that I wore on my hockey jersey as a youngster. So supercharged with this sense of good luck. <laughs> our episode today is about anti-Semitism. Yes, those two things don't necessarily correlate, <laughs> but uh, you got to take the positives with the negatives. Yeah, and specifically, it's about a resource that recently was released by a group called Jews for Racial and Economic Justice based out of New York City. A.K.A. Jfredge. They put out a resource called Understanding Anti-Semitism, thus the name of the episode. And it represents a huge leap uh, in terms of what was available before its writing, describing what anti-Semitism is, how it functions, uh, specifically from a leftist perspective. We wanted to talk with people who were involved in crafting this resource. Yeah, and so on this episode, we have two returning guests. Aurora Levins-Morales and Leo Ferguson. So if you're a keen Trafe listener... We don't even have to do a bio for you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we, we happened to be in New York City, uh, I think a few weeks before the resource was released. And so Leo was nice enough to send us a draft copy at that point. And we met up in New York and talked a bit about the process of creating the resource. And so in addition to talking to Leo, who is a JFredge organizer, we also spoke with Aurora Levins-Morales. She was also involved in crafting the resource. 
and is also just an all-around resource on this issue. So without further ado, here's your episode of Trafe for the 19th of Nissan 5778. Um, so we wanted to talk about the statement coming out uh, about anti-Semitism that Jews for racial and economic justice are putting together. We just read it before coming here, uh, what I think is still a draft version of it. And I, I was curious what the process was for writing it, because it seemed, at least at the beginning, that it was a fairly long-term project. So it's funny you called it a statement. We we have been calling it a resource. Um, and I think in many ways that actually speaks to where the story of where it came from, which was before the election, before the things that we're seeing out there in the world have sort of come to fruition. Aurora Levens Morales and Dove Kent, who was then the executive director of JFridge, were talking and doing some thinking together. And Aurora said, the left doesn't understand anti-Semitism. And the two of them had a lot of clarity about the fact that there was a narrative about anti-Semitism and that narrative came entirely from the political right. And that for a lot of different reasons, the left both didn't really want to tackle the subject. There were misconceptions and confusion about it. We did not think it would take as long as it did to write this. But what happened was first we just discovered that this is a topic on which there's, you know, three people and ten opinions, right, for any given, you know, every every little piece of this. And there was a lot of really deep wrestling and thinking about nuance and about what we needed to share. Believe it or not, there's actually a longer version of this thing floating around that, that a lot of what's here was sort of pulled from and distilled down from. And the chronological piece is sort of what the process looked like. You know, writing, sharing with other editors, getting lots and lots of feedback, synthesizing that feedback getting different perspectives and different voices um, from folks all over the Jewish community with different Jewish ethnic and racial identities and folks outside of the community, workshopping some of this with allies and partners and seeing how they responded to it and figuring out where the gaps were, what we weren't explaining well. Um, Could you actually talk a bit about what that that process of reaching out beyond the Jewish community was like? So that process... Was re- it was just incredible, you know. I think one of the one of the many ways that I think Jews are often stuck around anti-Semitism is, and I think actually this especially applies to probably Jews Jews on the left, folks who are doing movement work or maybe doing racial justice stuff. Especially, I think white Jews, folks who are used to showing up as allies or in solidarity with other communities, and there's something so powerful about what it looks like for Jews to reach out and ask for help or say, we we want you to have our back, we need you to have our back to other communities and for folks to show up eagerly and, and happy to do it. Like that was, there's just something perspective shifting about the fact that we get to actually be vulnerable. And it was a chance for Jfridge to reach out to a bunch of different folks and different organizations, people that we knew um, well, and we had been partners with for years, but had never had this conversation with and ask them to show up and take their time to come and read stuff and talk to us and and really get into it with us and it was a really powerful process and it taught us both that Jews are beloved and that there's also a lot of confusion and that there were things that we just assumed people would know that they had no you know didn't know and other things that people knew way more about than I think we thought that people would know and there's a lot of sort of having our assumptions challenged. Mm. Do you have any like stories or, or anecdotes that you can share from that process that stand out to you? That's a good question. First of all, it's just been a while and we've been through so many rounds that I don't want to get something wrong. Um, we have been doing workshops for years for Jews about anti-Semitism and talked a lot about internalized anti-Semitism and sort of the arc of Jewish experience, and especially in the United States. And so um, we had gotten very used to talking about white Jews assimilating into whiteness in the second half of the 20th century is kind of a, a story that's kind of familiar at this point, I think, among Jews. When we started talking about that in the a workshop with allies, It was this was new material for a bunch of folks, and, and it landed in a really interesting way where people like started expressing feelings of like deep betrayal and anger that the idea that, wait, you, are you, you're saying that, you know, white Jews chose this and they chose to, you know, align with white supremacy, you know, for, and folks who were being directly targeted by racism and, and white supremacy, that felt like a real betrayal. And we realized that we, 
we hadn't explained it well. And it was very, you know, it was a very, that there was all this nuance to that story that we hadn't communicated by just sort of being offhandedly tossing this out as like a, so that was an example of something where it really required us to think very carefully about the goal of this paper is it is, it is written for the Jewish community, but is frankly even more so written for partners and allies. That, that is, if I, you know, if I had to say who our biggest intended um, audiences, it's non-Jews. And so we had to think a lot and try really, really hard to figure out, you know, are we saying this in ways that non-Jews are going to be able to understand mm. all of the nuance and the detail that we're trying to communicate. Yeah, I, I was wondering if we could take a step back a little bit and talk about the failures of the Jewish left or the left kind of and the overlap between those two in putting forward an analysis of anti-Semitism. Like, what are we dealing with exactly? That's a great question. Clearly, part of what's happened is that as the political right in the Jewish community you know, gained power and traction, and as that community started using false charges of anti-Semitism as a tool to delegitimize and disempower activism around Palestine solidarity, the left found itself on shakier and shakier ground as it tried to grapple with what is true and not true about the Jewish experience, Jewish safety, the state of Jews today. I think there was the sense that if you were talking about anti-Semitism, people would immediately start questioning you know, whether you were talking about it from right point of view, whether you were just throwing that around in order to silence someone else, or whether you, whether it was real. What happened in 2016 made it very, very clear that anti-Semitism as an ideology was still very, very much alive in the United States. Yeah, something that I noticed in the resource is how often it reiterated and spelled out the role that Zionism plays sort of playing on Jewish fear to lead people to uphold systems of oppression and white supremacy. And on, on a recent episode of the show, we had Laura Whitehorn on, and she was talking about how big a fan she is of J. Fred's work. Um, but she was saying that one point of disagreement that she's often had with folks is about talking about the role of Zionism and doing just that. And so reading through, it really struck me how overt that was. And I'm just wondering if you feel like this represents a shift within J. Fredge of, of being more clear about that dynamic? I don't think it's a shift. I mean, I think I think that we just don't usually talk about this stuff. So it, what, there wasn't a forum for it to come out. You know, so much of what J. Fredge does is local organizing in New York City. And when we venture onto the national stage or into a wider, you know, into other areas, it's usually in the form of a short statement or a press release or something like that, or an event like the National Convening for Jews of Color. So it's, this isn't the first thing like this that J. Fridge has done, but there are very, there are relatively few of them, and certainly the first one on this topic. And so I think that this is just at the core of the ways that we see anti-Semitism operating, right? The, the two ways that it seems to be showing up right now in the United States are actual overt acts of anti-Semitism, which do exist and happen, um, and in fact can undermine and derail and threaten movements. And that's the other sort of big topic that this paper tries to tackle is how does that happen? What does it look like? And, and false charges of anti-Semitism, and those are almost always deployed around Palestine solidarity politics. It's the most common place that you see it. The, the example that we gave in our, it's not in the paper, although we might add it in last minute, we're still editing, but an example that we use in the workshop that we just did at the Women's Convention in Detroit, which was a fantastic opportunity. It's up on the web. If, I think you can find the video linked on our website. And it was a great opportunity to get to talk about this to a really fantastic crowd of, and a very large crowd, all of whom were really, really hungry for this. So you can see that people just really, really want this analysis. And one of the examples we used there was something that happened with the City University of New York, um, which is the big public, publicly funded uh, university system here in New York City. You know, huge parts of the student body are low income people of color. And two years ago now, I think, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo and allies in the Republican Conference of the New York State Senate wanted to cut $867 million from New York City's budget. And they wanted to pull most of that money from the CUNY system. They proposed this. It didn't go anywhere. And then the Zionist Organization of America dropped this letter that made a whole bunch of accusations saying that CUNY was a, an unsafe space for Jewish students because of Palestine organizing. Very little of it was substantiated. You know, there was very, very little there that seemed factual or that could be backed up. 
But the governor and the state senate used this as a pretext to say we're going to cut millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars from CUNY's budget in order to punish CUNY for being a hostile environment for Jews. Even if everything in the letter were true, it would be a nonsensical policy, right? Why would cutting hundreds of millions of dollars from a public university somehow improve conditions there for Jewish students? It doesn't make any sense. But it also seemed like very much like these were not founded charges. And so you have this situation in which people mobilize this fear that comes from historical trauma. There's very real reasons why folks are afraid of anti-Semitism, and that's fine. But we still get to make clear choices and decisions about how we want to interact with that fear, and we certainly don't need to be led around by it, especially not for someone else's political agenda. Mm. Yeah, could you expand a little bit on the ways in which this failed framework hurts our ability to organize, make connections, and like generally make things better for people? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the things that we did want to do in this resource was speak to some of these really tricky questions that don't usually get talked about in relation to anti-Semitism around privilege, around whiteness, around class. We just found that it was impossible to separate these things out and that you couldn't make a cogent description of what the oppression looks like for real if you didn't get into some of this stuff. And so seeing just how many times in history in Europe and in the United States and elsewhere anti-Semitism has broken up movements. It's, it's a very particular dynamic, and it's really interesting. And I'm sure, you know, movements struggle for lots of different reasons, and this is by no means the only one. But you can just look at place after place after place in American history, and even very recent American history, where either people have blamed Jews for structural oppressions that they could have attacked effectively if they had attacked them as structural oppression, but because of becoming confused that there's something about the Jewishness of people involved that they were led off track. Uh, you know, another example that we talked about in our presentation at the Detroit Women's Convention was something that actually Deerfridge is still involved in, which is our partnership with the Laundry Workers Center, which is a storefront organizing space here in New York City that organizes um, retail workers and restaurant industry folks and warehouse workers. And they are an incredible organization. They're really, really wonderful. They have a long history. And they were starting a campaign with warehouse workers at B&H Photo, which if anybody knows is like the big photo store in New York. And it's also very, very visibly run by Orthodox Jews. It's like known for this. And that's who all the kind of retail employees are. But behind the scenes, there are these giant warehouses. And the employees in these warehouses are mostly uh, Latinx, low-income folks. And they were facing horrible conditions and unsafe conditions, illegal conditions, and so they wanted to unionize. And the Laundry Worker Center was working with them on this campaign to improve their working conditions and to help them form a union. And they were worried about anti-Semitism. The, the folks who were part of this campaign, they didn't really know anything about the Jewish community, and so stuff was coming up and people were saying stuff about Jews. And so they reached out to us and we were super excited to get involved in this campaign, both because it's our values and it's right around the corner from our office, and because, um, it was a chance to sort of play a big role. And so we stepped in to be a partner and an ally and also we formed some really great relationships with the workers from BNH. In a weird way, J. Fridge has probably done more to help with anti-Semitism in New York City just by showing up places for decades than this whole paper will probably do in its entire lifetime. And so I think that that kind of showing up goes a long way. I mean, something that a friend of ours uh, was at the workshop last night. You should name check them. <laughs> our, our friend Adam was at the workshop last night. And something that he said was that it sort of represented a profound failure of Jewish radicals, that we can't imagine a world without anti-Semitism or where anti-Semitism isn't going to repeat itself. That if we're imagining a world without capitalism or a world without patriarchy or rape culture or colonialism, how is it that we can't imagine this world where, where anti-Semitism is not inevitable, where we actually change the material conditions that create it. And I feel like that really resonated with me. It's interesting to write an entire thing about oppression and actually feel like, no, this is actually really hopeful because the question of like just getting to sort of say, where does my safety lie? And feeling so clear 
especially in this moment, actually oddly, weirdly more so in this moment where we see more visible anti-Semitism, that my safety lies in solidarity and community with friends and neighbors and the people around me and the other folks who are facing danger and oppression that actually like the place where I feel the most safe is when I am surrounded by those folks. There's just something so liberatory about that, you know, that there's so many people who have my back, especially when I show up for them. But the only way we've been able to talk about this is it's like either you have privilege or you are being oppressed. Those are the only two states that we can sort of imagine. And, you know, there's reasons why, right? It's hard, it's hard to even get to this point in the conversation. But we have to be able to conceive of a place that we can get to in which, in fact, we get to give up our oppression without ourselves becoming oppressors and do so collectively with lots of other folks who are also getting free and that that's actually the thing that we're going for. Um, so it's actually really okay to be like, oh cool, the cycle's over, like I'm safe now, right? That's, that's a wonderful thing as long as that doesn't become part of a structure that then allows you to become oppressive towards others. One thing that keeps coming up in our conversations about this is the use of the term anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And I go back and forth between feeling like that term has too much baggage for a million different reasons um, and feeling more comfortable with anti-Jewishness as a phrase, but then also not wanting to lose the ability to use the term anti-Semitism sometimes. Can you talk about how, how you personally or the resource itself grappled with that question? We had a lot of conversation about that, a lot of discussions about language and literally about like hyphenation and not hyphenation. Like, I don't think anyone else would worry about it like this, but anyway. Yeah, we settled sort of late in the game, actually, on just going with anti-Semitism unhyphenated. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's a term with a lot of baggage. Uh, partly, I think I'm personally just a little bit allergic to playing language games in terms of um, I'd much rather talk about the thing than try to come up with the perfect word to describe the thing. And so, um, and, I, and I think there can be a false sense of victory like coining a new term, right, rather than taking back an old one. And I would much rather us exercise the political might that comes with in 20 years when people say anti-Semitism, they think of this thing the way that I think about it. Um, I think that that would actually be the real sign of victory rather than coming up with a clever new name for it. That said, we do use the term anti-Jewish oppression in the paper sometimes. The distinction that I've made or tried to make in the paper, hopefully it's consistent, is that I use the term anti-Semitism almost all the time talking about the ideology. I will sometimes say anti-Jewish oppression when I'm talking very specifically about like rounding up Jews and doing stuff to them. And you were, like that is anti-Jewish oppression. It's very specifically, you know, I think there's a deep, goes into some deep questions about where and when anti-Semitism is structural and when it isn't. And, uh, or I should say institutional, and whether, when it's oppression. Is it always oppression? Is it not? You know, these are all sort of questions that we've had to deal with. Yeah, it's, I mean, the the quest for a perfect term, I think this reminds me of, we were talking with folks about the phrase Islamophobia mm -hmm. recently on the show, and there's just so many people attacking Islamophobia as a term because it's not a perfect term. And it just, in those conversations, it really struck us how much that doesn't happen for anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. even though it has so much more baggage. And I'm curious if, in the process of JFRED reaching out to partner groups, if there's any talk about that dimension to it of, of, of phrasing. You know, the thing that we hear, right, the two most common things are other people in that area are Semitic, so you can't, you know, the term is inaccurate, or that it was created by anti, like, <laughs> to service the proposition of anti-Semitism, and therefore we shouldn't use it because it's somehow perpetuating that. I don't think either one of those arguments is very compelling to me for various reasons, but more than anything else, you just have to use the term that people are going to understand, and I think calling it something different would frankly just confuse people, and that's probably the simple main re single main reason that we went with it was just that we wanted everyone to be very clear what we were talking about. The other thing that I think is really unique about this document that makes it different than other resources on this topic that I've read is that we, you know, it was written by this multiracial, multi-ethnic coalition of folks, right, that it is written by Jews of color and Israeli and Sephardi Jews and folks with just all different kinds of different class backgrounds. And, um, and so not only does that, I think, make it richer and more powerful and more nuanced, and I think we tell stories that don't get told in, in other documents on this topic, and we avoid generalizations that are made in other resources, but also it's a different story. You know, anti-Semitism, People think of it as the story of stuff that happened to like white people in Europe. And I think that when you have a black person talking about 
what it is like to experience both anti-black racism and anti-Semitism, where you have a Puerto Rican woman, or you have all different kinds of folks with all different kinds of identities bringing this into the, the conversation, it just shifts the conversation and becomes something different. And I think that's another thing that I think is really useful about this. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but how can folks read this document, given that this recording is going to be put out in the future? Well, the document will be out in a matter of days. It will be certainly available at www.jfridge.org, J-F-R-E-J.org. Uh, look for us on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, and we are also really excited to get feedback. So we'd love to, you know, the, this is very much, it's the end of a project and the beginning of a conversation. So read it and tell us everything that's wrong with it, which is I'm sure what <laughs> most of you are going to do because we're kind of excited to have that conversation. Well, yeah, thanks so much for all your work on, on this resource and for bringing us up to the fancy uh, JFRED offices here. No problem. Uh, we'll go get in the jacuzzi like I promised and uh, I'll break out the champagne. <laughs> Sam and David and all Trafe podcast listeners, this is Aaron from Chicago. I just wanted to send a quick voice memo from London where I'm celebrating Pesach this year. I was at the Judas Seder last night and I want to give a big shout out and shkoyach and hazak baruch to them for being an amazing group that has provided a voice and space for leftist Jews in the UK and from around the world in the face of a rightward swing in the politics of Jewish institutions. That they are able to accomplish this with such good humor is really an unparalleled feat. And I also want to give one big and enormous thank you and hazak baruch to Lili Naz from Judas who cooked all the food for the Seder. Hashem yivarech et kol yadayich. May God continue to bless all of the works of her hands. And uh, I hope everyone had a great Pesach. I am a Puerto Rican Jewish feminist radical writer and historian and troublemaker. And I'm talking to you from my tiny house in Northern California. You can hear my wood stove crackling in the background. Well, Aurora, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always so great to get to talk to you. Likewise. As usual, we have a million things we'd love to talk about with you. So we'll see how much we can squeeze in. But the thing that we want to start off with is the new the new resource that Jews for Racial and Economic Justice just recently released. Yeah. Two and a half years ago, I was invited to be part of a series of teaching calls with Jay Fridge addressing issues of how internalized anti-Semitism was affecting their organizing work. And in the course of the conversation that I had following that call with Dove Kent, I said, you know, a really great way to work on internalized anti-Semitism is to talk about anti-Semitism out in the world and then deal with how we feel about it. And I had been looking for a way and looking for partners to really craft a left perspective on anti-Semitism because I saw a lot of the left just abandoning the issue to the right and the right being allowed to define the conversation. And... I was also particularly interested in clarifying the nature of anti-Semitism for people of color because of the ways in which intersecting oppressions there tend to create a whole lot of obstacles to effective organizing and effective partnerships. And Dove was excited about that idea. And so I came on board for two years. My official title was Poet and Elder in Residence to work as part of a collective process to create this document. I left, they had funding for me to work for two years. And after that, 
I left the process. So the end of crafting the document, I was not part of, but it was an amazing project. I wanted the document to do two main things. And my big goals for it weren't necessarily identical to Jayfridge's because their work is primarily domestic. They have a lot of partnerships with organizations of people of color. One of my goals was to clarify the function of anti-Semitism in class society, to clarify the ways in which it undermines organizing around class and racism, and to create a clear analysis of that that could then be incorporated into alliances between white Jews and non-Jewish people of color and with Jews of color at the center of that conversation. The other thing was that I, and this is you know, not necessarily a stated goal of Jayfridge, but I really wanted to undermine some of the core mythologies of Zionism. And I feel like the document effectively does a lot of that work. I have this one paragraph that has a metaphor that I really love that I made sure was retained in the final version, which many, many, many different people went were part of crafting, which is that class oppression and racism function as a kind of grindstone that presses down on a permanent underclass to squeeze the maximum wealth and profit out of them, sometimes to the point of exterminating people, but the goal isn't extermination, the goal is extraction. And that anti-Semitism is like a pressure valve that diverts the steam rising from the angry oppressed off to the side so that it doesn't scald the people who are actually sitting on top of the grindstone. <laughs> but that was not the case in most situations of North African and Middle Eastern Jews until European colonialism really got a strong foothold in the area at the beginning of the 20th century, at which point a lot more complex forces kind of converged on Jews of that region and some things shifted. But it has not been a universal Jewish experience. It's been a European Jewish experience that then got exported with European colonialism and imposed in other places. Mm -hmm. But it isn't that complicated. Yeah, so I want to talk a bit more about us making it too complicated sometimes. It seems like we're at, at a moment right now where different organizations on the Jewish left have been focusing and sort of getting our act together to present more of a coherent leftist analysis about anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah. And so I'm curious what you think about the ways that this is being presented to sort of our comrades in the movement. Like, do you think we're, we're making it too complicated? I don't, I think it's part of the content of anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism is complicated and that Jews are complicated. Something, you know, that I often have heard from non-Jews is this is so confusing and complicated. And I think sometimes there are ways that we internalize that and think that it's going to be really hard to explain. And I think that that's not the case. I don't think it's that confusing. I mean, I've tried that metaphor of, you know, a grindstone and a pressure valve on people who have really no experience thinking about anti-Semitism at all. And they go, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I think there are a number of things driving an upsurge in trying to create left analysis around anti-Semitism. For some parts of the left, it's about the escalation of right-wing Zionist attacks on Palestine solidarity. So trying to unconfuse people about what is and isn't anti-Semitism. I think with Jayfridge, there was a less reactive motivation, which was really about strengthening alliances in their work, which is primarily in New York City, strengthening an analysis of racism and anti-Semitism and how they interact, because that's the core of their work. You know, they're talking about racial and economic justice, and it's a Jewish organization. And without an understanding of the place of anti-Semitism in racial and economic injustice, it's, you know, it's going to hobble their work. So I really am very appreciative and proud of their taking that on and taking it on in the context of how anti-Semitism undermines other kinds of organizing. So you've talked about the ways in which the left has kind of given up the terrain of, of, of talking about anti-Semitism in favor of the right. And I'm wondering if you think the Jewish left has failed and why that is the case. I wouldn't talk about it as a failure of the Jewish left. 
I would talk about as a challenge for the Jewish left. I think that the lack of a clear left analysis of anti-Semitism in the U.S. really takes place at a crossroads of multiple forces, and one of those is anti-Semitism itself, is that the primary metaphor for all oppressions in the U.S. left is racism. That's the thing to which other oppressions get compared for valid historical reasons, but anti-Semitism doesn't function the same way as racism. And so there's often a misunderstanding that when there aren't concentration camps and roundups, anti-Semitism doesn't exist. And so not understanding that mechanism then makes it seem like Jews who wanna talk about anti-Semitism are just trying to steal the limelight from people of color talking about racism. You know, part of that is a lack of understanding of how anti-Semitism works, and part of it is responses to other dynamics that have to do with race and class between white Ashkenazi Jews and non-Jewish people of color. But that also fails to see the ways in which anti-Semitism keeps the racism in place. So I think a combination of things, including internalized anti-Semitism, make it hard, particularly for white Ashkenazi Jews, to feel like it's legitimate to talk about it and not feel like that's stealing attention away from quote unquote, more important things. You know, there's a lot of things that have made it, I think, scary and, and difficult to take on. And, you know, I think it's very important that there's been an upsurge in the last few years of organizing by Jews of color, because really we're the ones who need to be in the lead of this conversation. We understand better than anybody in our own lives and histories, how racism and anti-Semitism support each other and form a particular knot in our society. So I kind of want to go back to this idea about the challenges facing the Jewish left or, or the failure of the Jewish left to sort of present an alternative to the right's understanding of anti-Semitism. I remember when I was younger, I, I was trying to find any leftist writing that was presenting a counter narrative on this issue. And I had a very difficult time. There wasn't a lot to draw from at that time. And one of the, the pieces of writing that even touched on this, I sort of stumbled across accidentally. It was when I was reading this bridge called My Back, and it was actually in your writing. You were, you were writing at that time just about your own experience growing up and how anti-Semitism weaved into it. So I'm just actually really curious how your thinking has changed, because I think that was over 35 years ago now, right? Yeah, and it's really sad that that was the first thing that you were able to find. I mean, I think I have a lot more historical insight. I have a lot more information about North African and Middle Eastern Jewish experience. And it's a lot richer, more detailed and broader. But I don't know that my central understanding of it has changed particularly. You know, I, I think one of the things I experienced coming up in the left was how disproportionately Jews participated in the left, but not kind of visibly as Jews. And one of the stories, one of the things I remember is in 1981, maybe, there was a suggestion that we do a liberation Seder at La Pena Cultural Center in Berkeley, which is a Latin American solidarity organization. The staff, didn't think we'd get much turnout, but said, sure, why don't you go ahead and do that? And we ended up having to move the event to a local high school because instead of the 80 or so people they thought would come, we had over 500. And it spoke to a tremendous hunger among leftist Jews to be visibly Jewish and radical at the same time, and that there weren't a lot of places where we felt like we could do that. That within the left, it was kind of frowned on, at least in the parts of the left I was in, to emphasize our Jewishness. It was somehow seen as a distraction, which, you know, I remember feminism being treated as a distraction. You know, all of the isms get treated as distractions by the people who aren't targeted by them. And back then, the Zionist diatribes about anti-Semitism were mild compared to what we're facing now. Mm. You know, there's a way in which some of the writing about anti-Semitism that comes from the left seems almost apologetic for asking for people's attention about it. Oppression is oppression and none of it should exist. The point is not to be ranking oppressions, but to understand how they interlock. 
if maybe your, your thinking hasn't changed about how anti-Semitism operates over time, I'm really interested in how sort of how you explain it, if that's changed. You know, your, your role as a poet and as an artist, I think is a lot different from a lot of the people's backgrounds who are often in the role of explaining these things. I think a lot of people tend to veer into the academic realm, which isn't always the most useful for communicating these ideas. Amen. <laughs> you know, it's great that more radicals are in the world of academia. And one of the unfortunate price tags on that is survival in academia depends on acquiring really exclusive elitist language and then people get used to using it and then use it in non-academic settings. And I think it's a real um, obstacle to effective organizing. The language we use to talk about our ideas is the vehicle that transmits it. It doesn't matter how great the ideas are if they're bundled away in a lockbox that nobody has the key to. The power of art to communicate revolutionary ideas is that it's designed to actually reach people on multiple levels and speak to people's emotions as well as our intellects. By and large, people's minds are not changed by handing information out. What changes people's minds is a shift in their story about reality. And we have to understand what people's stories are and we have to understand how to tell a good story. So I use a lot of metaphors when I talk about anti-Semitism. I talk about things that are familiar to us. We need to be able to tell those things as stories and, and show how it functions instead of getting into all kinds of abstractions is really what's gonna communicate this. One of the horrifying realities of the situation in Puerto Rico right now is that a significant number of the predatory finance companies that are extracting wealth from Puerto Rico for Wall Street are owned by Ashkenazi Jews. And that has combined with longstanding anti-Semitism in a basically Catholic society to some eruptions of anti-Semitism in the media talking about this wealth extraction as a Jewish phenomenon. It's not a Jewish phenomenon, it's a capitalist phenomenon. And so how we tell those stories, how we point out that nobody was screaming about the Presbyterian wealth extractors, you know, we have to figure out how to tell narratives. And I think, you know, one of the things that we don't pay enough attention to in the fight over the story of anti-Semitism is that when right-wing Jews are screaming that any critique of Israel is anti-Semitic, what the understory of that is, is that they have no faith whatsoever in solidarity as a force that could save Jews from another eruption like the Holocaust. They don't believe in solidarity as a possibility, and therefore they believe that an armed defensive state is the only possible way to survive, and therefore they translate any a critique of that armed state as you know, somebody punching holes in their life jacket. It means that the core narrative that we have to address is the failure of solidarity. Um, there's a quote from a man whose name I can never remember because I have a brain injury and I can't remember names, um, but who was speaking in the Netherlands. He was a, a Bundist leader in 1947 talking about the way in which the Holocaust undermined, made organizing by socialist Jews a whole lot harder because faith in humanity had just taken a huge blow. Basically saying that Zionism was a defeatist position, stopping asking the world to stand by us as human beings, as Jewish human beings. And the line, which I'm probably misquoting that I love, he said that if we can establish worldwide justice, I think he was saying socialism, there will be nothing to run from. And if we don't, there'll be nowhere to run to. That there's no small armored state that is gonna protect any group of people from global oppression. It doesn't work that way. And I think it's interesting to think about Zionism as a defeatist position. And it doesn't ask for liberation and security worldwide for Jews. It asks for a little chunk of territory we can only hold by being absolutely horrifically oppressive to other people, which is a really pitiful thing to settle for. I mean, do you, 
do you think we're being too academic in the way that we're explaining all this? Like I'm thinking about, you know, like the Jewish for racial and economic justice statement is I think about 25 pages. Uh, the, the, the Jewish voice for peace came out with a new book. Um, we're giving this yes. work, we're giving this workshop, but I think it's about four hours. We have handouts. And I'm just thinking like, if we're telling people you have to read a 30 page statement or you have to read this book or you like, are we doing the academic thing here? It, there's two streams of bad practice converging. <laughs> one is the <laughs> academic one, and the other is the kind of left tradition of left gobbledygook, where we think we have to learn use certain kinds of left language to explain left ideas. And you know, the work of shifting how people think, artists are the experts on this, and artists really need to be far more effectively used in our movements. I just finished spending a weekend with the Artists Council of Jewish Voice for Peace, and it was so wonderful to be in a room of people who really think in terms of the kinds of shifts that we can do through the arts and understand that the role of artists in the left isn't to you know, make a nice decorative border for a whole lot of jargon. Jargon makes people feel important or radical or authorized to speak, but it doesn't actually do the job of conveying meaning to people. So yes, I absolutely think that we're using far too much academic language and that it's a sort of self-validating practice that is very elitist and really defeats the purpose of communication that we're trying to do. You know, if we're trying to talk to a wide range of progressive people from multiple classes with lots of different levels of exposure to thinking about anti-Semitism with different kinds of access to different kinds of education. We, we need to be talking story. We need to be talking metaphors that make sense. We need to be thinking about the path from what people already know to what we want them to understand, engaging with people where they are. We need to be using language that has the power to move people. And, you know, I've got a doctorate and I'm a pretty literate person. And when I read academic language in a left thing, I feel stupid. You know, it kicks up sexism, it kicks up racism and colonialism, it kicks up all the things that make people feel stupid. The last thing we want as organizers is to wield our ideas like a club that's going to hit people in all the same places that they've already been bruised. We want to inspire people, we want to excite people. You know, if I had been the sole author of the Jayfridge document, the whole thing would have read like poetry. To really invite people into understanding this particular trick of misdirection that has been being played on us and to understand that. And, you know, I probably would use metaphors about magic tricks. I use the metaphor of machinery. I would use a variety of different metaphors so that people had a visceral understanding of how this thing works. The people who disagree with us will present an argument that is the top layer of a much deeper story. People don't hold oppressive positions because they think oppression is great. People hold oppressive positions because, generally because they're scared. They feel threatened by something and have come up with a story to explain both the threat and the thing that will protect them from the threat. And if we're going to successfully shift people's perspectives, we need to actually be addressing the understory. We need to understand what they feel threatened by and why. There's a fascinating study done at Yale on attitudes toward immigration. And a lot of the rhetoric around immigration draws on metaphors of infection and contamination. So in this study, right before they questioned people about their attitudes toward immigrants, they managed to reference the fact that there was a flu epidemic. And then some people were offered hand sanitizers. And just mentioning the flu and then letting them sanitize their hands shifted their position toward a more humane, compassionate one. The experience of feeling more protected against viruses reduced the power of anti-immigrant rhetoric over how they reacted to human beings in a migratory situation. So if we're gonna successfully tackle the ways in which the right-wing narrative of anti-Semitism impact our organizing work, then we have to understand what the, what the bottom layers of those stories are about and really think strategically about what the counter stories are that we need to be creating 
you know, the work I was, I was talking about working at La Pena Cultural Center. I worked there late seventies, early eighties. And there was a, a program that was being put on by Chilean exiles in which they played beautiful music. And then in between somebody got up and read statistics about percentages of land ownership and like what the oppression was in numbers. And people yawned their way through that and then waited for another <laughs> song. And the songs were kind of the bait to get people to listen to statistics. And so we formed what we call the Cultural Productions Group, which is about, I don't know, 16, 17 people who were artists. And we created these shows, which were, you know, for back then were multimedia, which meant projecting slides on the screen and mm -hmm. having music and having dramatic monologues. And we put together a show about the same issues based on Victor Jara's album, La Poblacion, that was about land takeovers in Chile. And we presented it at a conference on Latin American solidarity. We presented a shortened version of it. And it was late in the day. There were people who were getting their coats on trying to discreetly slip out. And we started our program, our performance. And those people stood in the doorway with their coats half on for 45 minutes and experienced organizers who knew the statistics by heart were crying because they were so moved by the story being told in this different way. In a similar way, right after 9-1-1, as the war was being launched in Iraq and Afghanistan, I had a job briefly for Pacifica Radio writing poetry about the news. And people would call in from having pulled over by the side of the road because they were crying and they couldn't drive. They knew that the war was happening. They knew people were being killed. But when I wrote a poem that said, you know, on the day before the bombing of Baghdad started, that pregnant women were going and inducing labor so they wouldn't have to be out in the streets when the bombs were falling. And I wrote a poem that started, someday a thousand children of Baghdad will ask why they have the same birthday. It brought the real story of what was happening to Baghdad into people's hearts in a completely different way than civilians are being killed in Baghdad, which people have become numb to. You know, so our job as organizers is to understand what the stories are that people are telling themselves that have them taking positions that are harmful to other people. And we need to be very, very, very good at figuring out what the counter stories are that shift a sense of possibility for people. Well, I think, I think that's a good note to end on. Aurora, it's always such a treat to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking this time to talk with us. It's always a pleasure. Love talking to you guys. Why is this episode different from all other episodes? It's time for Skoyach. Welcome to Skoyach world-renowned segment. Yes, David. The segment is ranked 9.9 .9 out of 10 on the Leftist Jewish Media Awards scale website. Yeah, it definitely exists. All right. Um, let's uh, tone down this useless banter and move towards the reason why the people are here. Why are they here? They're here to hear our shkoyachs. Uh, I think that's highly dubious, but let's get into it. Now, David, what is your shkoyach for this week? Um, so for this episode, I have a shkoyach and an anti-shkoyach. Nice. Uh, I figured I'd balance it out a little bit. Which one do you want to start with? I'm going to start with the anti-shkoyach. Um, so we started recording about 10 o'clock, and at 8 o'clock, I was at a demonstration. The Canadian Border Services Agency were trying to deport someone named Lucy Granados, who's a member of the Non-Status Women's Collective in Montreal. All right, I follow you. This has been all over the news, thanks to the good work of activists around the city. Yeah, and Solidarity Across Borders and many other groups have been actively mobilizing around Lucy's case, trying to prevent her deportation back to Guatemala. And my anti-shkoyach is to the Canadian Border Services Agency. An organization that is well-deserving of an anti-shkoyach. Yeah, I mean, we could both probably sit here and, and talk about the reasons why they're deserving for hours. But um, the reason I was inspired to give this anti-shkoyach on this episode is because Lucy has been living in Montreal without status for years, working low-paid jobs, very precarious work, very dangerous work to support her children, her family in Guatemala. And as was stated very eloquently by people from Solidarity Across Borders, it wasn't until she filed a humanitarian and compassionate appeal to have her status regularized in Canada that CBSA started targeting her. 
essentially telling her that you can live in the country without status as long as you want. But if you want rights, if you want to have your status regularized, we're going to target you. We're going to come for you. Mm. And so they actually were lying to and blackmailing her lawyer, telling her the claim wouldn't be considered unless she presented herself to the CBSA. And then when that was refused, they found where she lived, barged into the home, assaulted her, and took her away to deport her before her claim could even be heard. So thankfully, activists are mobilizing and trying to prevent the deportation. Unfortunately, the only reason she hasn't been deported so far is because the conditions she's been experiencing in her detention have been so dire that she's actually been hospitalized. So until she's out of the hospital, they're not allowed to deport her. Uh, so the mobilization is is continuing, but anti shkoyak again to the Canadian Border Services Agency. And hopefully by the time you're listening to this, Lucy will be out of detention and not on the track to be deported. All right, so with, with our anti shkoyak set of the way for the day, what is your shkoyak? So my shkoyak goes to Ron Silag, a reporter for the Canadian Jewish News. Wow. Some love to the CJN. Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously the caveat is that the, it's a very reactionary paper. And I, I mean, I think they had an apology for Billy Graham in there the other day. Anyway, that was unreal. That actually was my vote for worst Canadian Jewish news article of the year. <laughs> anyway, uh, my, my shkoyak is to Ron Silag for a report following up on a piece that we had on our previous episode about the Uncle Moishi situation. Oh, wow. I'm so excited to hear the news about this. Okay, so actually, do you want to try to recap people about what the situation is? If they didn't it hear would last be episode. an honor. Okay. Okay. So from what I understand, there is a musical troupe geared towards the Orthodox community called Uncle Moishi. Project starts, you have Moishi 1, and you have the two producers who are making the music. There's a dissolution of the relationship, and now Uncle Moishi 1 is continuing to perform, but Uncle Moishi 2 now has taken the place of Uncle Moishi 1 with the two producers, and there are competing Uncle Moishis who have large debates about copyright and content and who's going to perform where, and it's it's quite a disaster. But last we left the story, a bait dean in New York was pending a decision on what was going to happen. David, for people who don't know what a bait or base dean is, could you explain? A bait dean is a Jewish court. It's a parallel legal system that particularly members of the Orthodox community sort of quasi-voluntarily subject themselves to in place of the state legal system. And for the most part, these courts deal with civil matters. So since we last recorded, the Beit Dean has clarified its ruling. Wow. And they say the original producers, Suki and Ding, they own those songs, the old Uncle Moishi songs. Okay. But both parties can use the name and perform under the name Uncle Moishi. That's fascinating. So it leaves them in a situation where there are two Uncle Moishis, both empowered by the Beit Dean to perform as Uncle Moishi, and it doesn't seem like that situation is going to stop anytime soon. I guess part of me feels a little bit bad that the first Uncle Moishi, now it seems like he can no longer play his original songs. Yeah. That seems sad. I hope his new output is good. I listened to the new album. <laughs> and? It's horrible. I mean, listen, the, the best production for artists is often earlier in the career. It often goes downhill. It's Uncle Moishi without the mitzvah men, with yeah. these two dilettante producers. <laughs> So that's my shkoyach for the week. So Sam, mm -hmm. what is your shkoyach for this episode? My shkoyach goes to the concept of nostalgia. Oh, interesting. I would like to recount an event that happened to me nigh two days ago, where I sat in the stands of the Montreal Olympic Stadium, mm -hmm. the building that looks like a spaceship that was built in a concrete fever dream in the 60s or 70s. That's where they were housing the refugees, right? Correct. But it holds a special place in my heart because when I was a youngster, I would go with an elder relative to watch the Montreal Expos oh. play a baseball contest against a variety of other baseball teams in North America. When was it that the Expos folded? The year 2004. They did oh. not fold. The shitty owner of the team sold them away. Okay. So I was sitting in the stands... And the contest consisted of two squads, the Cardinals of St. Louis and your Toronto Blue Jays. Wait, in Montreal? So every sports league has an exhibition season before the regular season. What's that mean? So you play a bunch of games to warm up. So it's not it's not uh, your regular roster. It's a lot of the younger players or bubble players or people that like... It's like a, it's like a what if. It's not canon. It's Yeah, sure. It's, it's what if. It's tryouts. And so because Montreal fans are yearning for baseball, we haven't had baseball since 2004, we 
get duped into paying exorbitant <laughs> prices to see an exhibition game, which people normally pay no money to go see or very little money because uh, there's no value in going to see an exhibition game. That's a good racket. Yes. So every year there's two exhibition games in Montreal between Toronto and some other team. Huh. But don't people in Montreal hate Toronto? So that's the really hard thing where you have to kind of bite your tongue and you just kind of cheer for Toronto because they're close. That's so weird. Um, but the point of the story is that I'm sitting in the stands and there's a player who's young. I think he's 19 or 20. And in, in around the sixth or seventh inning, he gets called out to play third base. And this player is someone by the name of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Does that name mean anything to you? Not a thing. Okay. So he's about 20 years old now. And his father mm-hmm. was an all-star for the Montreal Expos when I was a kid. Okay. So this guy comes out, runs out onto the field. He hasn't played a pro game yet. He's probably not going to play this year. But he comes out on the field, and he gets a standing ovation from the whole crowd oh, because wow. everyone's just so excited to see the son of this all-star back in Montreal. Mm. Um, it should be noted that Vladimir Guerrero was just inducted into the Hall of Fame. So shout out to him. I mean, it seems kind of sad a little bit that everyone's sort of like in this uh, ongoing mourning over this cultural phenomenon that no longer exists. It's definitely sad. Why, why did the Expos leave? So that is an important Passover question, David. In short, we had a terrible owner. And so whenever we had good players, he would just sell them. And eventually, attendance became terrible. So he sort of hollowed out the team, and then it was no longer a profitable enterprise. Yes, and so they moved to Washington. Okay. So getting back to the story, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. came up to bat in the ninth inning. It was 0-0. And he hit a home run to win the game in almost the exact same spot that his father hit a walk-off home run Mm. 15 or 20 years earlier. So people were really into it. And he had almost the exact same swing as his father because it's having a swing is a very distinctive thing in baseball. Um, And often if you're learning from a parent who is a professional, you'll probably mimic them to a certain extent. So it was like watching this man 20 years later do the same thing. And it was very special. I, I just felt like for all the shittiness of sports, I really liked it. I want to shout out Nostalgia. I want to shout out Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and his father and the Montreal Expos. And yeah, that's that's my score for the day. And I feel like I now understand the equivalent of what I feel when I'm in a packed theater watching one of these Marvel movies and they make some deep cut reference and everybody in the theater goes, what? And then when everyone's walking out, they got a smile on their face. Exactly. It's it's that. It's It's precisely that. Where it's just like that brings joy to you that you can't share with most people. But when you're in a room with all the people who can share that joy, it feels really great. Yeah, it's a very particular nostalgia that's being sold back to us endlessly now (laughs) until we're dead. It should also be noted that we're 30, so (laughs) it also comes with the territory. RIP, all new cultural experiences. So that's our show. Our rip-roaring interviews and spoil segment. Thanks again to Leo Ferguson and Aurora Levins-Morales for uh, speaking to us about the resource, about these really difficult concepts that we're, as the Jewish left, finally starting to engage with in a more serious way. It just felt great to keep that conversation going. And thank you again to the entire crew of people who helped put on our anti-Semitism workshops in the Pacific Northwest. I know we've thanked you a bunch of times, but thank you again. It was a really special experience. We're also working in the medium term to put out a resource of our workshop so that people can just use it and we don't have to go to different places. But if you're interested in having us come and do the workshop, please get in touch. Trafepodcast at gmail.com. Trafepodcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks, as always, to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill for designing TravePodcast.com, and to Sack Syndrome and SoCog for the music that you heard in the episode. And a special thanks to the Trave staff rabbi, Ariana Katz. You can follow us on all of the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud. You can also send us comments, suggestions, hate mail, Uh, other pieces of information to trafepodcast at gmail.com. 
Or if you have a strong opinion about the show, you can leave an iTunes review. Uh, or if you feel like supporting the show, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next month. guy who died i told you about him little peep does the p stand for petty tom petty no nope. uh peep one ah. sec my foot is f- asleep on my here well, hold up what's that knocking sound sam I'm trying to wake my foot up okay start are again. you walking up the stairs yeah what's on the top of the stairs you're gonna open that door i'm gonna kill colonel mustard knock on the door i'm gonna kill colonel who's mustard. on the other side of that door